The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning, Bereans. All right, this morning I am not preaching a message from a selected text, uh, but I am going to preach or discuss a topic that there's much debate and confusion over, and that's how to interpret prophecy. Another way of phrasing this topic is how do we interpret the symbolism in prophetic text, namely the hard book of the Bible, which is the book of Revelation. Now, we seem to understand a lot of the symbolism in non-prophetic texts, okay? We understand the cross and baptism, the Lord's table, and Jesus' miracles. Those are all, you know, the symbolism's pretty obvious there, right? But there's confusion and sharp debate when it comes to interpreting the symbols in the book of Revelation. So this morning, I want to bring a better understanding of how to read the prophecy from what I've learned All right, let's start with the definition of a symbol. Craig Coaster says, A symbol is an image, an action, or a person that is understood to have transcendent significance. That sounds really fancy. Let me give you an easier way to say that. Is symbols point to something beyond themselves. It's pretty easy to understand. Uh, When God wrote the Bible, he included symbolism that his original audience would understand. We believe they would understand it. These symbols are not a secret code that he wanted his readers to decipher. God wrote the New Testament to an audience that was very familiar with the imagery of the Old Testament, and they understood it. And perhaps the biggest reason why we are so confused when it comes to interpreting the book of Revelation is that we're so unfamiliar with the prophetic language of imagery in the Old Testament. Now, this should look familiar. Uh, A few weeks ago, Bob Cruikshank was here Um, He wrestled with this literal versus spiritual debate in his recent sermon on Revelation 21. And he was trying to answer the question, is the new Jerusalem that comes down uh, from above, is it a literal city with literal walls adorned with literal jewels, 12 pearl gates, and literal streets of gold that is a literal 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles cube or a pyramid? Or is this to be understood symbolically as a picture of the current spiritual reality of the Church of Christ in the New Covenant? So I think there's a better way to navigate through this debate over literal versus spiritual interpretation of a symbol. I think there is a much better way. I want to share with you a better perspective on this old debate between interpreting symbols literally or symbolically. What simplifies the debate is to interpret these symbols, ready for this? Biblically. Ooh. (laughs) Shocking. The whole Bible tells us what these symbols mean. Okay? That's key. I gained a better understanding of this perspective by reading from David Chilton's book, Paradise Restored. This is a great resource. If you want to understand how to read prophecy better, this is a great resource. Resource. Uh, now, I want to say that it's just, I'm not, it's not like David Chilton has all the answers. I mean, he's basically giving us uh, a, the approach to reading the Bible, studying the Bible called biblical theology, which is basically just following the storyline of the Bible and seeing how the themes of that story develop throughout the Bible. Okay? I mean, scholars do that all the time. It's just that somehow we don't apply that to uh, eschatology. I don't, I don't know why. When it comes to prophetic text, we, we just don't do that. Let's do that. And that's kind of what David Chilton's approach is. So I'm just trying not to throw his name out too much this morning. Um, I'm just saying I think this is, this is the intended way the Bible was supposed to be written. Um, the approach that Chilton suggests is that we must allow our interpretations of symbolism in prophecy to rise organically from the overall pattern of the biblical story rather than imposing our prearranged views of reality upon the biblical text. And you know, it's not as easy to do as we think, because we are kind of programmed with our own presuppositions that we impose on the text. 
Stop doing that. It's hard to do. Chilton writes, instead of trying to fit the Bible into a prearranged pattern, we must try to discover the patterns that are already there. We must allow the Bible's own structure to arise from the text itself to Im- and allow it to impose upon our own understanding. We must become accustomed to the biblical vocabulary of modes of expression seeking to shape our own thinking in terms of scriptural categories. All right, that's huge. And what Chilton is saying is that you'll never discover for yourself the way that the biblical imagery works in the Bible if your assumptions lead the way you read prophetic texts. If you want to familiarize yourself with the vocabulary and modes of expression that the prophets used in the whole Bible and know that you're reading a genre of literature that uses lots of poetic imagery, then the author's use of a symbol should be obvious. John and the Holy Spirit wrote Revelation expecting that the seven churches would understand the uses of images. Did you guys know that the Bible is literature? It is. Did you know that God wrote the Bible as literature that employs all the literary features of plot, twist, climax, resolution, structure, repetition, symbolism, and get this, artistry? Yeah. So we can use, I think it's our left brain that is artistic. Or no, I'm sorry, that's right brain. Yeah. I think God wants us to think that way. So if God wrote the Bible with our own pattern, with his own patterns of structure and literary features, then we must draw, we will just draw distorted conclusions about his story if we don't read the story on its own terms, the way that God structured it. Chilton explains how prophetic symbolism is to be understood. The symbolism of the Bible is not structured in a flat, this means that style. Instead, it's meant to be read visually. We are to see the images rise before us in succession, layer upon layer, allowing them to evoke a response in our minds and our hearts. The prophets wrote to teach. They wrote in visual, dramatic symbols, and if we would fully understand their message, we must appreciate their vocabulary. We must read the Bible visually. The visual symbols themselves and what the Bible says about them are important aspects of what God wants us to learn. Otherwise, he wouldn't have spoken that way. I think that's very well put. And, yeah, I think the idea here is that rather than just telling us things, God wants to show us. Okay, we see that in Revelation 1.1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show or to signify to his servants the things that must soon take place. If God attempted just to tell us abstract conceptions of spiritual realities, do you think we would understand them? You know, that's why we have a whole Old Testament that comes to us with shadows and types and pictures so that when Christ comes on the scene, we, we would understand it. I mean, it's hard, it's hard just to explain a spiritual concept without the metaphorical pictures, right? So God chose to show us the spiritual realities as well as actual events in Revelation by teaching us through stories and showing us pictures. But these pictures are not a secret code. They were meant to be understood. And the original audience of Revelation understood this letter because they were familiar with the poetic language and symbolism that was already used and explained in the rest of the Bible. So instead of speculating about who is the beast, who is the dragon, who is the great harlot, it would be better to apply the analogy of Scripture principle and listen to how the rest of the Bible has already explained the meaning of these symbols. Does that make sense? Symbols in the Bible work like word association. When the Bible speaks of a symbol like water, it functions something like a buzzword, if you've ever heard of that. A buzzword is a term that conjures up all of the things the Bible associates with water. So, for example, when Jesus encountered the woman at the well in John 4, his mention of the water of life would have conjured up all the associations the Bible has to water imagery, to
So where, oh man, I gave the answer away. Oh. <laughs> All right, where do you guys first, see, I already gave it away. Where do you guys first see water in the Bible? Genesis 1. Okay, what, what do you see? The water being separated, stuff like that. Well, but even before that, before that, Genesis 1, 2, what do you see? I don't see Something's hovering over. Oh, yeah. The spirit's hovering over the, the water, you know, the waters of chaos, the abyss, right? And then God formed life out of the watery abyss, from the watery abyss. Um, Genesis 2, you've got the great river of Eden with, with four rivers coming out of it. Uh, Exodus 14, you have the redemptive Red Sea, where God saved his people by water. Um, Exodus 17, you have the water that flowed from when Moses struck the rock, uh, and that gave life to his people. Ezekiel 47, you've got the river of life that's flowing from the east side of the temple, and it heals all of the Dead Sea. All right, so these are this is just a little smattering of things that the woman of the well might have been thinking of when when Jesus mentions the water of life. Oh, forgot to advance the slide. Sorry about that. When we're familiar with the literary patterns and images of the whole, whole Bible, then we're going to be able to bring all those associations into the images that Revelation uses. And not only are you going to be able to understand the pictures like Babylon, uh, Egypt, Sodom, a wedding, a marriage supper, a wine press, a sickle, a dragon, and a harlot, but we'll also be able to understand the rest of the, uh, the significance of the numbers, oops, the, the symbolic numbers in Revelation. The most symbolic number is seven, 12, 12 tribes, 24, what do you got, 24 elders, right? Uh, 144, that, uh, by the way, that's Revelation 21, which we're going to look at today. It's 144 cubits. 666, everybody knows that's in Revelation. 1,000, hi Bob Crookshank. Uh, 12,000, that's also in Revelation 21. And the 144,000, those are all symbolic numbers. None of those, I don't think, are literal numbers. Um, I'm not, that's for another sermon. Okay. Chiltern's approach to interpreting the, the Bible symbols is actually really simple. Number one, read it visually. Try to picture what the Bible is saying. Number two, read biblically. Don't speculate or become abstract, but pay close attention to what the Bible says about its own words. And number three, read the story. Try to think about how each element in the Bible contributes to its message of salvation as a whole. All right, and we're actually going to try to exercise and do that this morning. All right, at this point, I want to stop telling you about image, about how imagery works in the Bible, and I want to show you. See what I did there? I want to jump into what I think is the obvious central theme of the Bible and how the majority of the images in the Bible point to that theme. Can I ask you guys a question? What do, what do you guys think is the central theme in the Bible? Who said it? Salvation. <laughs> ding, ding, ding. Veronica said it. She gets a prize. Amen. Yeah, I think everyone agrees that God's salvation to mankind is the central theme of the Bible. There it is. The theme of salvation progressively unfolds through the entire story. But uh, an important thing I've come to see is that salvation, this is important, Salvation is shown in the Bible to be less about our escaping from this miserable earth to get to heaven, to get into heaven, and it's more about heaven coming down into, into the earth. We're going to see that with the imagery that is presented with salvation in the Bible. It actually presents it that way. That is the greater emphasis of God bringing his dominion and his kingdom and his rule into all the earth rather than thinking of salvation as, oh, we get to go to heaven. Now, that's true we get to go to heaven, but, but the emphasis here in the Bible is actually bringing heaven to earth. And I'm hoping that the patterns that the Bible imposes upon itself onto your understanding will change your mind about that. All right, so the central image of salvation in the Bible then, slash dominion, is the Garden of Eden. And we're going to look at that. 
So one of the most basic themes of Scripture is that salvation restores man to his original purpose. We see God's original purpose for man stated very clearly in Genesis 1. God created man in his own image, and that is to be something like God, to represent God in the earth to all creation. That's Genesis 1, 2, 26 to 28. And man was to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it all, subdue all creation in the earth and have dominion over it all. Eden was a garden temple and a place where heaven and earth came together. Remember that, because a lot of the imagery we're going to see is going to show heaven and earth coming together in a temple. Okay? So think of the Garden of Eden as a temple. It was a place where man dwelt joyfully. You're going to see this concept of joy, joyfully, in the presence of God, and man delighted in the rule of God. Now, Adam was essentially a king under God's authority who was supposed to bring the garden temple, this realm of God's dominion. It wasn't supposed to stay there. It was supposed to, he was supposed to bring it into all of the earth. But when man rebelled, he lost his ability to have godly dominion because he lost fellowship with his creator. Now, we still bear the image of God. Man still bears the image of God, but he lost his original covering, which is the glory of God. And now mankind is naked. And as a result, the image of man has become distorted and broken as a result of sin. And the earth, which was planned to become God's garden temple, has instead become a wilderness of thorns, thistles, sweat, scarcity, pollution, and death. And this curse for man's, this is the curse for man's rebellion. And by the way, all of these things that I, that I mentioned, these wilderness and thorns, thistles, sweat, death, those are all symbols that you're going to see in the Bible as well. So man, man was banished from the garden and forbidden to enter it again. Remember the, the cherubs with their, sword, their flaming swords, you can kind of see that in the picture, banished them from re-entering it. But we know that God promised to reverse the curse and someday crush the serpent's head. Genesis 3.15 tells us that. God sent his son, Jesus Christ, as the second Adam, in order to undo the damage brought by the first Adam. God is able to redeem people and grant them entrance back into the garden temple once again by recreating them, by making them a new creation in Christ. And through Christ, people are recreated in God's image and clothed again with the glory of God, never to be kicked out of God's presence again. Isn't that beautiful? That's the gospel. This is a picture of me about to base jump. No. <laughs> Lord, please save me. The unfolding of salvation in the story of the Bible is so much more than just going to heaven when we die. The story of the Bible presents salvation as restoring man to his original role and purpose in bringing God's dominion into all the earth. The Bible is a story about conquering with the gospel and restoring the rule of God into the entire earth. Now, it's important to recognize that the language and imagery of restoring God's dominion in the earth is one of the Bible's major themes that's woven into the fabric of the entire story. The image of Eden is an essentially important aspect of salvation that Christ provides. All right, so notice, if you will, some of the Eden restoration language in the Old Testament. All right, the promised land is a, a symbol of that. Uh, the promised land was supposed to be that. Uh, Joel describes it as it's like a garden, the Garden of Eden, and it's described in Exodus as a land flowing with milk and honey. I think we all know that. Isaiah 51 says, For the Lord comforts Zion, he comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord, joy and gladness, there it is again, will be found in her thanksgiving and the song, the voice of song. Now, by the way, that sounds very familiar to the description of Mount Zion, which we're also going to talk about this morning. So notice how a lot of this imagery overlaps. All right, here's another one, Ezekiel. I don't know if you guys can read that. Um, when Ezekiel proclaims the coming of the new, co new covenant 
in his future. By the way, when you think of new covenant, think of Ezekiel 36, Jeremiah 31. Um, He uses Eden language when he talks about the new covenant. He says, thus says the Lord God, on the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will cause the cities to be inhabited. That's another symbol. And the waste places rebuilt and the land. There's another symbol that was desolate shall be tilled instead of being the desolation that it was in the sight of all who passed by. And they will say this land was desolate, has become like the Garden of Eden and the waste and desolate and ruined cities that are now fortified and inhabited. And then the nations, pay attention to that word, the nations, are left all around you, shall know that I am the Lord. I have rebuilt the ruined places and replanted that which, is, which was desolate. I am the Lord. I have spoken. Check it out. I will do it. Okay? He will do it. All right, so there's other sub-themes of Eden. All right, you're not just going to see the name Eden every time there's a, there's a symbol of it. You're going you're gonna to notice other themes. Um, some of these themes include water or the river of life, um, land. Okay, we just read a verse that described the land as either desolate or inhabited. That is imagery. Um, trees. The tree of life was in the Garden of Eden. Where else do we see the tree of life? Revelation. Very good. Um, and think of, think of uh, Proverbs 1.4. Um, a man of God is like a tree planted by streams of water. That's another, another image. Precious jewels. Where do we see precious jewels in the Bible? Revelation. Yep. The New Jerusalem. What's that? Proverbs, Genesis, yep, Genesis 2, 11 to 12, talks about precious jewels. So when you see that, that is imagery that comes from Eden. Um, and the holy mountain. Do we see a mountain in Genesis in the creation account? Do you guys remember a mountain being mentioned? Well, it wasn't mentioned as a mountain, but check it out. Um, oops. I gave it away again. <laughs> I gotta have some like trigger discipline here. Um, oh, I was gonna say that uh, we see the mountain imagery all over the Bible, and there's a strong connection uh, to mountains as sites of God's redemptive acts and His revelations, and and where man connects to God in worship. All right, Eden was located on a mountain. How do I know that? How do we know that? Ezekiel 28, 13 to 16 tells us that. Uh, it says, you were, okay, now this is speaking of the, referring to the king of Tyre, uh, portraying him at, uh, kind of portraying him as the serpent who was in the garden. And he says, you were in the garden, the garden of God. I placed you, you were on the holy mountain of God, In the abundance of your trade, you will be filled with violence in your midst, and you sinned, so I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God. Okay, so so there's the connection there that Ezekiel tells us that um, Eden was either either was a mountain or it was on a mountain. And it makes sense because you're gonna you're gonna kind of see a lot of the imagery of Eden as portrayed as being a mountain. All right, let's go quickly here, just through mountain imagery. You've got Mount Moriah. What happened there? Very good. <laughs> Abraham uh, was supposed to sacrifice Isaac, and the Lord intervened and provided a substitute. That was an act of redemption. Uh, Mount Moriah is where Solomon built the temple. He restored, it's kind of starting to restore the garden temple. And by the way, the temple itself is adorned to look like what? To look like the garden if you read the descriptions yep and then there's mount sinai in exodus 24 uh, that's where god revealed himself to moses on mount sinai and later mediated his covenant and his law and his presence to moses now just as adam had been barred from the garden the people of israel were forbidden to approach the holy mountain on pain of death but moses the priests and the 70 elders of the people were allowed to meet on the mountain after making an atoning sacrifice 
and they ate and drank communion before the Lord. Mount Carmel. Uh, it was on Mount Carmel that God brought his straying people back to himself in the days of Elijah, and where the prophets of Baal, who were the intruders into his garden, were destroyed. That's 1 Kings 18. Now, it's actually interesting to note about the word Carmel in Hebrew. Uh, it, do you know what it means? It means garden land plantation. Okay, so the, the original readers would have picked up that imagery. All right, let's jump to the New Testament. Mountain scenes there. Now, in the New Testament, Yeshua, the mediator of the New Covenant, delivered the law again from a mountain. That's Matthew 5. That's the Sermon on the Mount. I think I was supposed to advance the slide. There we go. His official appointment of his apostles was made on a mountain. That's Mark 3. And the transfiguration happened on what I believe to be Mount Hermon. That's Matthew 17. Um, So the temptation in the garden at Mount of Olives after uh, Jesus had the Last Supper with his disciples where he prayed happened on a mountain. And then you have the Great Commission where uh, Jesus commissioned his disciples to conquer the nations with the gospel, and he promised to send them the Holy Spirit, and from there he ascended into the cloud. All right, so let's talk about Mount Zion and the city of God. Now we're, it's, it's kind of the same imagery as, uh, it's not the same, it, it's similar to uh, the holy mountain, but it's kind of a little different nuance. Now we're describing it sort of as a city of God, okay? Uh, Jesus refers to, he's speaking to a Jewish audience, and he says, you are a city on a hill giving light to the nations. That's what Jerusalem was supposed to be. That's what the apostate uh, Israel was supposed to be doing, that they failed. Uh, Psalm, Psalm 48 is all about Zion, the whole thing the city of God, which is his holy mountain, which he describes as beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. And Zion was always portrayed as the place where heaven and earth meet, just as the garden and the temple were, and is the central place of worship of Yahweh. It's the central place of worship. And Psalm 2.6 says, As for me, you guys should know this, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And this pictures the messianic king reigning from his holy mountain. All right, and then you have Isaiah 2. Isaiah says, <clears throat> speaking of the holy mountain, It shall come to pass in the later latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. It shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. And many peoples shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. She shall judge between the nations, and shall decide disputes for many peoples. All right, moving on. Isaiah 11 is another big one. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. They shall not hurt or destroy in my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Okay? I think God's going to do that. And then Isaiah 60, chapter 60, prophesies of a new and glorious future Israel where the nations shall come to your light, he says in verse 3, and also describes it as a temple city whose gates shall be open continually. Try to remember this image, guys. The gates open continually, day and night, shall not be shut, that people may bring to you the wealth of the nations with their kings led in processions. All right, let's remember that because it's coming up later. It's going to come up in Revelation 21. Um, Daniel 2, verse 34 and 35. Okay, this is Daniel interpreting the dream of King Nebuchadnezzar 
and he says, this is the interpretation. He says, as you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image <clears throat> on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the, like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. And here's the, here's the good part. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Okay, that stone is imagery of who? Of Christ becoming a mountain and filling the whole earth. You're going to see that imagery again in Isaiah 28. All right, let's look to see what the New Testament says about the city of God, which is also referred in the New Testament as, very good, the New Jerusalem. Sorry, the class didn't actually say something. <laughs> Trying to wake up the class. I'm slow, probably. Oops, let me go back. Oh, yeah, that's right. All right, Galatians 4. Um, Galatians 4, as we know, talk, uh, Paul aims to show his readers that the new covenant is better than the old covenant by giving them an allegorical comparison between Sarah and Hagar as well as comparing two mountains, Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. But it's very interesting that he doesn't say Mount Zion uh, instead, he calls it the Jerusalem above. Mount Sinai represents the Old Covenant, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar and corresponds to the present Jerusalem. But Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. Now, we know that the Jerusalem above is referring to Christ's church, the new Jerusalem, the city that is from above. And yes, I'm thinking of Revelation 21 when I read this. And so here's the thing is Paul tells us explicitly what the symbol means. <clears throat> and it's the, the symbol means it's a group of people and it's a spiritual reality. But guess what he's definitely not thinking of the New Jerusalem as? A literal city with literal walls and all that. I'm just saying. Okay, uh, Hebrews 12, 22 to 24, for time's sake, I don't have time to read it all. I guess I got a little more time, but um, I'm just going to summarize it, this passage. Uh, this is another comparison between Mount Sinai, representing the Old Covenant, with Mount Zion, the New Jerusalem. Okay, And the author goes on in verse 28 to reference what we read earlier from Daniel 2, verse 34. This is another place where we, we see the meaning of the New Jerusalem is actually given explicitly. He's... Um, he says, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. All right, so in Hebrews 12, can you see how all this connects all the pieces of New Jerusalem being a mountain, being Mount Zion? Um, it's, it's fulfilling all that imagery. Uh, it's connecting it. You see the word new covenant there, and it's also making the connection to a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Those, all of those elements are there. Um, actually, this is, I just wanted to say that this is another description where the reader understands. In fact, the writer of Hebrews is saying this is symbolic language. He's telling you that, and here's what it means. He tells you what it means. I'm not sure how more clear he could be to understand that. All right, um, 1 Peter 2, again, I don't have all the text just for time. I'm trying to be brief. 1 Peter 2, uh, 4 to 11, uh, Peter connects all the elements of Mount Zion and the temple of Jerusalem to the church. And he calls Christians a holy and a royal priesthood. And he also quotes Isaiah 28, 16, as does Paul in Romans 9 which references Christ as the stone which Mount Zion is established upon. And he also calls Christians a holy nation who were once foreigners who were brought into the holy mountain 
just as all the prophecies that we already read described. Oh, forgot to advance it. Calls them a holy nation. And then the big one in the end is Matthew 5. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. You see the imagery there of Mount Zion, the city of God. That is what Israel was supposed to be, and that's what the church of Christ is. It's a city on a hill, city on a mountain, giving the light of Christ, the knowledge of God to all the nations. All right, here's the fun part. So this is, this is kind of an exercise. Uh, I want to be able to apply everything that we've learned. I want to take this approach of interpreting symbolism. Uh, we've already looked through um, all the texts that, well, I, I, I can't say all the texts, a lot of the texts of the whole Bible that associate with the symbol of the holy mountain and the city of God. Okay, so all of that's in our mind. Let's now go to Revelation 21 and apply what we've learned. So what, I, what I've done is I've just made some observations. Okay, full disclosure, guys. I'm not doing a full exegetical uh, message or uh, study here. I'm just, I'm just making basic observations. Okay, I'm going to let Bob Crookshank do all the heavy lifting. Right? <laughs> I'm just, this is like Burroughs of Berea side study. That's what this is, all right? <laughs> Um, okay, again, I don't have the whole text of Revelation 21. I'm just doing little snippets here. Okay, it's descri- describing the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from heaven, and it's also associated with a great high mountain in verse 10. And this makes me think of the scriptures that we just looked at as God's holy mountain. You see symbolic numbers that are in there. You see the numbers 12,000 stadia, and you see the number 144 cubits. Those are measurements. Um, as far as I can see, all the numbers in Revelation are symbolic. That's the point of them being there. Okay, All of Revelation is, is a visual, artistic presentation to communicate a spiritual message. Okay, Now, yes, there are. There are literal things, uh, literal events that Revelation is describing. So, but again, in, in literature, you've got imagery and symbolism, right? So you've got figurative things right alongside of literal things, okay? So I understand that we have to be able to decipher the two, but I'm just saying if you look to see the patterns to which the Bible uses imagery, um, and again, I'm going to let Bob do another, or we'll do a study on, on the study of numbers, symbolic numbers in the Bible. How about that? Um, my study so far, that's my conclusion, is that these are symbolic numbers. They're there not to describe the actual factual information about a city. All right, another observation is that the city is adorned with precious jewels, and it, it actually spends a lot of time describing uh, what it looks like. You've got um, gates of pearl, you've got streets of gold, and then it just goes on describing the beauty of all of these um, jewels. And again, that, you know, if, if I'm somebody in the church, uh, one of the seven churches that John is writing to, and I know the Bible well, and I know the Old Testament really well, you know, all the things that I'd be thinking of when I see the imagery of, of these jewels, I'm going to be thinking of Genesis 2, of all the, the jewels, the minerals that are described there. I'm going to be thinking of the, uh, the breastplate of the, the high priest. Okay. And by the way, what, what do you think that was there for? That was there because the high priest was supposed to be a picture of the second Adam. He was supposed to be Adam with the cursed lifted from him. And so, so the, the point of those were that it beautified him. Okay, it was like the glory of God. Okay, so uh, I know there's some symbolism about the thing that was on his head as well. It's supposed to symbolize um, the sweat. Sweat of was gone. You know, he doesn't have to work anymore. Um, the curse has been lifted. So, so the <clears throat> the high priest was supposed to be a person who who imaged that the curse was lifted to all the people of of Israel. Um. And then just in general, uh, 
the jewels are there just to, to, to illustrate that God's holy mountain, that his temple is beautiful. Okay, now think about this. The story of Revelation is also a story of divorce. God is divorcing his old wife. Okay, she played the whore, and according to the law, what is someone supposed to do with such a wife? Supposed to stone her, right? Kill her, execute her. And by, and by the way, that's the only way that the Old Testament really speaks of divorce is death, okay? Death is divorce, okay? So uh, the Revelation is a story of divorcing. Uh, God is divorcing his wife who played the whore. We see that story played out in the Old Testament and in the New. And then he has, he, he has a new wife. He makes a new wife. And the thing is, is like God, God was supposed to be beautifying his wife. He attempted to beautify Israel, but she played the whore, right? So now God has a new bride, and that's his church. That's us, who he has made beautiful. Okay, and I, I, think, that, I think that is an absolute beautiful imagery that is being expressed here in Revelation 21. The Edenic imagery which points us to the beauty, bounty, and blessings associated with paradise under God's dominion. That's what that's pointing us to. Yeah, and John... Yeah, don't need to say that. Um, I didn't put this in the notes, but an important... Maybe I should read this. Have I gone long? Am I going long? Should I read it, Amy? i got to ask the boss here. I'm going to read it. Sorry, it's, it's not up there on the screen, but I'm going to go ahead and read verses 22 to 26. This is actually going a little faster than I thought, and I just didn't want to go over. So, Verse 22 says, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, <clears throat> For the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light the nations will walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and the gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring it into it the glory and the honor of the nations. And so you see there that John quotes Isaiah 60, verse 11, which I read earlier. And he uses all the language of Isaiah 60. Now, Isaiah 60 is all about bringing in foreigners, bringing in kings of the nations, bringing them into the city. It's about conquering nations, and it's about keeping the gates of the city open to allow the nations to come in. Okay, that's the imagery. Um, Now, do you remember all the verses that we read about Zion And God's mountain all had references to conquering nations, bringing them into God's holy city. Do you see how all of the imagery of the whole Bible is coming together here in Revelation 21? That's what God wants people to see. He wants to see that it's all coming together. All right, there's there's another point. Wrong button. Okay. Sorry, I just, I just explained that part. Now, here's another part I want, I want to point out. Revelation 21, verse 3 says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Okay, that is actually a quotation from, I know it's, I know it's Isaiah 65, but I think it's also Isaiah 28. Let me just check my note here. Yep. Oh, sorry. Isaiah 25, verse 8. Isaiah 65, verse 19. So here's my thought on this verse. So we're, we're trying to answer the question, are, are we talking about, is Revelation 21 describing heaven, or is it describing God's church on earth? That's what we're trying. Now, so here's, this verse right here is something that just kind of made me think, um, God is saying, God is is showing us what his purpose and his intention is in the garden and with Mount Zion. 
is he, he's saying over and over that he wants to dwell with his people. Okay? So if you think about what the Garden of Eden was, if you think about what Mount Zion was, if you think of the descriptions of the holy city, it was where heaven and earth came down and met together. Right? God dwelling with his people. Where does God dwell with his people? It seems like he, he wants to dwell with his people now, on earth, here. I mean, we, we are the new Jerusalem. We are God's people who are, we have been resurrected into God's present, presence right now. We are presently in God's present, presence. That's what the Bible says. That's how God, the Bible thinks of resurrection. And so, you know, I, I just don't see, all of this imagery I see isn't pointing to heaven. Now, I would say this, and let me, let me go to the next slide, kind of, and there's the question, is John referring to the same New Jerusalem as Paul, the author of Hebrews, and that the Old Testament's refer to? And I, I say yes, the connection is very obvious to me, and it's likely that um, any member of the seven churches would have understood it that way. That seems very obvious. Okay, I don't know if you can see that question. Um, if we're supposed to read Revelation 21 visually, then what does the imagery point to? I believe it points to a heavenly city that is filling the earth, not heaven, with God's dominion. And all of these prophecies about the holy mountain and the holy city emphasize filling the earth. That doesn't mean God isn't concerned about people going to heaven, but it's just that what Revelation 21 and all of these other passages are describing really isn't about that. It's just describing filling the earth with God's dominion. All right, two questions. Could Revelation 21 still be describing heaven at the same time? Um, I say that's plausible. Um, you, you know the phrase, as in heaven, so on earth. Have you guys ever heard that phrase? Um, so I say it's plausible that it could mean that, but I'm just saying that the text isn't really saying it that way. It's not presenting it that way. Okay. Um, now, why do people think of Revelation 21 as describing heaven only? Let me, I, you guys, you guys know the answer to that one. Why do people think Revelation 21 is thinking of heaven only? All right, that's what we've been told. Are there any things in Revelation 21 that might that you somebody would read and say, "Ah, see, it's saying this is probably this is indicating heaven." What in Revelation 21 might someone think that way? How about verse 1? What does verse 1 say? There it is. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and the sea was no more. Um, most, a lot of people think that that is a reference. This the literal versus symbolic again. Um, they are, believe the Bible is saying that this is talking about the end of the world. This is deconstruction language. Uh, I think Bob touched on that when he when he preached his sermon. Uh, but we know differently that. I mean, if, again, if you understand the way the Bible uses the, those words, it's prophetic language that describes um, the Old Covenant and the passing away of the Old Covenant. It's all over the Bible described that way. All right, so how... That's just my tab. How to read symbolism in prophecy. All right, so I hope that this exercise has given you a better understanding of how to interpret Revelation and the symbols of prophecy. Now, Revelation is highly connected to the whole Bible. Okay, so John gets a vision from God, and John, with the assistance of the Holy Spirit, is just grabbing everything he can in the Bible, all of the imagery, quoting, and it's all coming together. Um, and when we look, and when we look at how Revelation functions as a whole, we can see that John mimics the same patterns of symbols that we've already seen and used and explained by the biblical writers. So if you need to know 
how do I interpret this symbol? Where do you go for the answer? The Old Testament, and there's, you go to the New a little bit, but most of it is in the Old Testament, right? That's where you would get your answer. Where, where? The Scriptures. The whole Bible tells you the answer. So Revelation is a story about the lights-out judgment of apostate Israel, the end of the Old Covenant, and the glorious consummation of God's eternal kingdom that will bring the nations into his holy mountain where the dwelling place of God is with man right now. I hope that you see that the story of the Bible reveals to us that God sees this world here and now not as a sinking ship, but the place of his main concern, right? Heaven is God's throne. The earth is God's footstool. God's salvation is more concerned about bringing heaven into the world than escaping out of it. God says over and over that he will bring his dominion into all the earth, and that ought to give us courage and motivation to be part of what God has promised to do. So let's pray. Father, I thank you that you have given us such a wonderful story. You reveal yourself in story. We know that your word is literature. We know that your word functions that way. And so it's my prayer that we would recognize that and we would read it that way. I, I pray that you would give us understanding. Thank you, God, for what you've taught us this morning about your holy mountain, your, your holy city. Thank you that we are in the new Jerusalem right now and we are in your kingdom right now. And God, your word says that you will bring dominion into this whole earth. And so I pray that we would be motivated, we would be encouraged by that promise that uh, this, world is, this world is not a sinking ship, God. This world, your church is a holy mountain that will grow and will bring the knowledge of the Lord into all the earth, God. And so I pray that we would be motivated to be a part of that and that would encourage us and that would give us the perspective that, that you are saying in your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.